Welcome to UKIS I Tell, the newly rebranded podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Every month, we'll be getting together with a guest who's an expert in their field to talk through some of the key issues of our time. So whether you're into constitutional law or politics or international relations, subscribe and listen in, because this is the place you'll figure out what's really going on. joined today by the esteemed international lawyer and author, Philippe Sands. Philippe is a professor of law at UCL, a QC at Matrix Chamber, and the author of many books, including um, the best-selling East-West Street and The Rat Line. His recent work, The Last Colony, examines Britain's post-war colonial legacy through the story of the Chagos Archipelago and the landmark case that went to the International Court of Justice in The Hague in 2018. Philippe, welcome and thank you very much for your time. Shall we start with Chagos? First of all, can you just tell us where is it? And secondly, why is it so important? Sure. Well, just to kick off how really lovely it is to be on this podcast, I, I have listened to it and I'm, I'm really thrilled to be having this conversation. <laughs> um, so the Chagos Archipelago is a group of about 58 tiny islands in the middle of the Indian Ocean. It has always been territorially treated as part of Mauritius, which was a French colony until 1814, and then became a British colony until 1968 when Mauritius attained independence. But three years before Mauritius attained independence, the United Kingdom decided that the government of Harold Wilson decided that it would accede to a request to give one of the islands, Diego Garcia, on a lease basis to the United States as a military base. And in order to achieve that, it did two things. Firstly, it separated Chagos from the rest of Mauritius and created a new colony, the British Indian Ocean Territory. It will be seen as the last colony the United Kingdom ever created, and it's the last colony in Africa, hence British colony, hence uh, the title of the book. And the second thing they did, having created, as it turns out illegally, uh, this new colony, it also decided, uh, as if things could not get worse, to remove the entire population. Um, And over a period of three, four years, from late 60s to 1973, 2,000 human beings, all black, all descended from uh, enslaved people, were forcibly removed, deported to Mauritius and Seychelles. That, in a nutshell, was the story. And you've written this fantastic book about it. Um, Just tell us a little bit about the ICJ, the International Court of Justice decision, um, and what's happened to the the people from the Chagos Islands since. Sure. Well, I mean, I, I, um, as you'll know, have a sort of double life, putting aside the writing of teaching, which I still very much love, and writing academic books, and working as a barrister occasionally. And one of the cases that I was involved in, I'm not independent uh, on this issue. I'm not impartial. I've been counsel for 12 years. I'm still counsel uh, for Mauritius, and it's it's very clear that your your listeners understand that. I've tried in the book to be as balanced as I can, but on occasion I I, I, am so sort of infuriated by what's happened that I, I, I let my emotions hang out there. I was on holiday in in the spring of 2010, um, actually skiing in France on a chairlift when my phone went. Uh, I normally don't pick up my phone when I'm on a chairlift, but the number seemed interesting or different. 
and it was the office of the Prime Minister in Mauritius asking whether I'd be part of a team in Port Louis in Mauritius and around the world to bring proceedings internationally to recover sovereignty by Mauritius over the islands and allow the Chagossians who'd been forcibly removed and who wanted to return to be able to return. And so for the last 10 years, I have been engaged in that exercise. It's been fascinating because it's a sort of first-hand seat at the UK's place in the world. And we can no doubt talk more about that um, momentarily. But there were a series of cases uh, culminating in a decision of the International Court of Justice in February 2009, ruling unequivocally and without dissent on the merits, uh, all 14 judges, that the United Kingdom was in illegal occupation of the Chagos archipelago, that it had to leave forthwith, and that the Chagossians had the right to return. And that has been the position ever since. It's been recognised now by the United Nations, by almost all countries in the world. We're in the end game, really waiting for the United Kingdom to come to a final settlement with Mauritius. I should say, Mauritius, I think very wisely, has told the Americans and the British, if they want to be involved, that the military base at Diego Garcia remains. They've offered a 100-year lease. Uh, Mauritius has also invited the United Kingdom to contribute to the establishment of a lawful marine protected area with all Britain's science and technological skills. There are Cambridge scientists who are involved in it, and I know everyone wants them to continue to be involved. Um, relations between the two countries are excellent. So I'm mildly optimistic um, that we may be reaching the end of this horror story. And what's happened to the people in from the Chagos Islands, because am I right in thinking there's about 3,000 of them living in Crawley? Well, <laughs> and so why Crawley? There were about, yeah, they were just about, <laughs> there were about 2,000 who were living on the islands, and they were all forcibly removed between 68 and 73, and they were sent to Mauritius and Seychelles. And there was an issue for some of them about their nationality, some were given British nationality. And those who were given British nationality, very few, um, decided actually they'd like to exercise their rights to go and live in the United Kingdom. And so they were taken to the United Kingdom. They landed at Gatwick Airport and no one met them and they had no money. Several hundred people. I mean, it really is a deplorable story. And so eventually, after two weeks at Gatwick Airport, apparently, they made their way to the nearest town, which is Crawley, which is now where there is a... Chagossian population. I've been down there a few times. You know, they live in okay conditions. It's not absolutely dreadful, but it's not ideal. Um, and that is the reason that they're dispersed. One of the interesting aspects, of course, is that different parts of the Chagossian community have different views about these international issues. I think the vast majority think Chagos is part of Mauritius and welcomed the ICJ's uh, ruling. But there is a sizable minority who are pretty worried about what will happen under Mauritian rule and wish to remain part of the United Kingdom. But that ship has sailed, so to speak. It's interesting, isn't it? Because um, some people say international law is not proper law um, and, uh, and, and look th at the way that s states deliberately disregard international law. Is this a story, actually a more positive story, of um, the law coming to the aid of the people from Chagos and the UK government delivering on its, object, on its obligations? Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that international law yeah, I mean, is that body of rules which is really on the, on the fault line of, of, of law and politics. Um, 
to put things in context, I mean, I've been involved over the last 35 years in about 30 cases at the International Court of Justice. And I have to say, in almost all but one or two, there is full compliance with the decisions of the court. We hear the headline cases of horrors, Iraq, Ukraine, Russia, where there are manifest violations of the rules and not much to be done about it, it would seem, um, at least in the near term. Um, but international law is a long game. You know, the world changed in 1945. They created the United Nations, a rules-based system. Britain was a very big player in that. Court system, the idea of a new international order. And that's what's rather creaking right now. I think part also of Make America Great Again and Brexit. It, it, it's that generation that created the 1945 moment, sadly, has gone. And into that disappearance and into that gap come folk who just have forgotten what Europe is capable of doing to itself and what the world is capable of doing to itself. So it's creaking. I'm not starry-eyed about it. But absolutely, in February, I went to Chagos with Lisby Elysee, who is the heroine of my book, who was forcibly deported in 1973. And, you know, frankly, but for the decisions of three international courts and tribunals and 28 judges, we would not have found ourselves for five days on the Chagos archipelago. So there's room for hope. So you say that the UK is ultimately a respecter of international law, and you say that the UK was there at the forefront of drafting some of these major texts, in particular the European Convention on Human Rights. And yet, at the same time, what we're seeing now is the UK using, and dare I say, abusing international law. I'm thinking of uh, the argument about um, uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill being justified on the grounds of Article 25 of the uh, draft um, Articles of State Responsibility. How do you feel about this use of international law by the UK government to achieve its political aims? I'd say I feel sad and confused. You know, I studied law in Cambridge from 79 to 83. I loved it. And I focused on international law. And I had a series of just wonderful teachers. And one of the things that we were always taught was that Britain was one of those rare countries in the world that actually abided by its international obligations. And so, you know what it's like? You sort of, it, it's infused into our DNA. We just, we just know that's how it's done. So there is just a sense that we're in a new territory now. This historical contribution that's been played um, has gone. Look, again, I'm always a half cup full type of person. I'm optimistic that it will somehow come back, that it's not destroyed forever. Um, Because what's and all, and Britain has made mistakes, nevertheless, on the development of international law, it has played a hugely significant and I think generally very positive role. And so I want Britain back, batting in that positive way. You were taught by Chris Greenwood, um, who, as I'm sure our listeners know, um, was a very well-respected judge on the International Court of Justice, but yet his mandate wasn't renewed. Does that actually show that, in fact, um, the world is moving on and that there are other countries which have previously been somewhat overlooked are now asserting their position on the international stage, or do we learn other things from that incident? Well. 
I mean, I, I go back many decades with Chris. He was uh, my first, one of my first teachers of international law. He's a superb international lawyer, and he was a superb international judge. I liked some of his judgments. I didn't like others, but that's just how it is. With That's just p- part of the system. He then found himself in 2017 up for re-election at the International Court of Justice. And as things panned out, it turned out that two candidates fought over a single seat. And it was a British candidate and an Indian candidate. And Britain, your listeners need to understand, has had a judge at the International Court of Justice and its predecessor, the Permanent Court of International Justice, since that institution was created by the League of Nations in 1919. So we're talking about 100 years. There'd never not been a British judge. So all the expectation was that the British judge, Christopher Greenwood, would be re-elected, but he wasn't. He lost to an Indian candidate. He lost because of an unhappy confluence uh, from the United Kingdom's perspective of Iraq, Brexit, and Chagos, which um, led many countries not anymore to support the United Kingdom. In fact, not widely known, I do write about it in The Last Colony, the plug was finally pulled by the United States. It was pulled by the Trump administration, who decided not to support the United Kingdom, but adopted a position of equidistance between the United Kingdom and India because Mr. Trump loved Mr. Modi. It's as simple as that. That's what happened. And the special relationship, you must remember, Catherine, I'm I'm married to an American. She's always telling me the special relationship is a one-way relationship. And and it turns out she's sort of right. And that was the end of that... um, judicial appointment for for Judge Greenwood, um, I think in many respects, very regrettable because a really, really good judge. Um, But that is politics today. But what's significant here is, I think, the connection to the subject that you have helped so many of us on uh, over the last five years, and that's Brexit. Um, People in the UK don't really realise what the implications of that has been at the international level. So in relation to Chagos, the case went to the International Court of Justice because of an advisory opinion from the United Nations General Assembly, and that required a vote. And in 2010, when we first examined that, we said that there was no way Mauritius would be able to persuade the General Assembly to vote a request for an advisory opinion because it was up against the UK permanent member, the US permanent member. When it came up again in 2017, Brexit had just happened. And Britain basically lost its 27 supporters in the European Union, not only in the sense of voting against or not with the United Kingdom, but they weren't there to lobby with the United Kingdom. And that's the crucial point. And Britain lost that vote. And the same thing happened the following year, uh, well, later that, later that, later that year, I mean, June and November 2017, catastrophic year for the UK and the UN, um, with the vote for the judge at the International Court of Justice. So so Brexit has had these profound consequences, which in many ways, I mean, you know, as counsel for Mauritius, I was delighted we got the General Assembly request through for an advisory opinion. But a part of me was really sad because I didn't like to see the UK's heft collapsing uh, in this way. And I think it's just the tip of an iceberg. The gap between people in the UK's perception of Britain's place in the world And the actual perception, when you go to places like the UN or Berlin or Johannesburg or Pretoria or wherever, it's just big and getting bigger. That gap is huge. And 
people in the UK need to become aware of the UK's actual situation in the world. It's, it's changing dramatically. Hello. Sorry to interrupt this fantastic podcast. My name is Catherine Barnard and I'm one of the senior fellows on the UK and a Changing Europe programme. And I wanted to tell you about our wonderful newsletter that comes out each week, full of news and views. And then if you're really interested, follow us on Twitter too. I think um, we should move on perhaps to the, of course, the, the biggest issue facing um, certainly Europe at the moment, if not globally, which is, of course, um, Ukraine and uh, Russia's um, invasion into Ukraine. First, given um, Biden, President Biden has um, accused uh, Putin of being a war criminal, um, do you think this is helpful? And do you think uh, that there should be um, charges against him personally and also against the Russian state? Uh, how does international law play out here? So I deplore the Russian invasion of Ukraine, just to be very clear at the outset. It, it seems to me to be a manifest violation of international law. There is no justification for it. Self-defense, not authorized by the Security Council or any other or any other reason, um, weapons of mass destruction were not there, genocide wasn't happening there, there wasn't a humanitarian justification for it. It is illegal, period. Um, and that illegality constitutes, in my view and in the view of many people, a crime of aggression. I did write an op-ed for the Financial Times. Um, they asked me to address any aspect of international law in Ukraine, and I settled on the issue that you've raised, this, the crime of aggression issue, and identified a gap in the legal order and the gap was this. There are basically, since Nuremberg days, four international crimes. War crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, and the fourth, which was the central crime in the Nuremberg trial, then called crimes against peace, today called the crime of aggression, waging a manifestly illegal war. The International Criminal Court and various national courts have jurisdiction over the three conduct of war crimes. But the ICC doesn't have jurisdiction over this crime of aggression for various political reasons and has never had a jurisdiction over that in relation to this aspect, this territorial place. And so I said what ought to happen is we should basically do what happened in 1945 and create a special criminal tribunal with jurisdiction over the crime of aggression. Why did I do that? Firstly, because I suppose I am influenced by Nuremberg because these the horrors are now taking place on exactly the same territorial area, geographic area, over which Nuremberg sat, and because the crime of aggression is the only international crime which leads straight to the top table. The challenge for prosecutors who are looking at war crimes and crimes against humanity, I mean, I don't think on present evidence there is a genocide going on, um, is that it's going to be very difficult to prove the connection of the top table, Mr. Putin, Mr. Lavrov, the senior military leaders. We don't know enough of what's going on on the ground as to why some of the horrors that are being reported are happening. And one has to be very careful not to jump to conclusion, which is why I didn't think it was wise of President Biden to label Mr. Putin as a war criminal. I mean, he may be responsible for some of the things, but we just don't know at this point. We don't know what his role is, if any, on some of these issues. On the other hand, the crime of aggression is clear. He unleashed this war with a small number of people. It's a slam dunk. And I've been 
interested to see that that op-ed has generated a whole set of ideas. And I can tell you, countries are now supporting President Zelensky in the call for a special criminal tribunal. And watch this space. It does now seem very possible that an interim office for a special prosecutor will be created, possibly in The Hague, in the not-so-distant future. So the debate's been going on slightly out of the public eye. Your underlying question is a very important one. I mean, is it sensible to target these people with the risk of criminal indictment? The reality is, as things stand, someone's going to have to negotiate with President Putin at some point. Can you negotiate with someone who is suspected of international crimes or, stronger, indicted? Uh, we just don't know what's going to happen. And in these kinds of issues, I do go back to 1942 and the remarkable Declaration of St. James, when a similar thing happened and European governments in exiles gathered in London and issued a document, very short, calling for the criminal prosecution of Nazi leaders for crimes committed across Europe. And in 1942, in general, everyone thought it was a nonsense, it's never going to happen. But of course, three years later, everything had changed. So we just don't know. And I think the key point in this regard is to stick to our principles. I'll surprise you with what I'm about to say, but I'm much more with Boris Johnson on this issue than I am with Emmanuel Macron. Um, I, not words I would normally expect to say, um, but I think Mr. Macron has just got it wrong, trying to cozy up to Vladimir Putin. It's hopeless. And you know, saying he, we don't want to humiliate Russia and so on and so forth, Russia has invaded Europe on a massive scale. You can't just accept that this has happened. We have to react to it. But does it mean because Putin could be charged with any number of these crimes in, in different ways, this is, creates a, a perverse incentive, or incentive in his case, to carry on fighting because he knows that the alternative is that he will um, end up you know, with the same fate as some of the Serbian leaders, um, you know, before the Court of Justice, International Court of Justice. Y yes, there's, uh, you know, I could, I could be mealy mouthed and I could dissemble, but no, the answer is yes. Of course, it creates a disincentive to him peacefully stepping down. When I talk, you know, to Ukrainians about that, I did, in fact, even have a conversation with the Ukrainian Foreign Minister about that. He just laughed. He said, "You really think?" There's a negotiated settlement here in relation to and this is going to make a difference. Absolutely not. We've got to stick to our principles. Uh, and and um, we have to we have to address it. And I think ultimately um, that is right. You know, in relation to Yugoslavia, I was deeply involved in that issue. I, I was counsel for Croatia in the genocide case or the alleged genocide case against Serbia. And so I saw firsthand what the effect of indictments or possible indictments did to leaders. I mean, it's, um, it's, it is said that the then leader of Croatia, Mr. Tudjman, who was seriously ill with cancer, did not travel to Germany because he was frightened of being arrested. And we know that Mr. Milosevic, of course, also dug in his heels in the face of secret indictments. And then when the indictments were made public, of course, uh, that didn't change anything. So I think that is right. I think we just have to stick to our points of principle. That's the difference between them and us. There is a criminal framework out there. We can't just pretend it's not there and hope that these people will suddenly be all nice and cozy and warm. It's, it's not, life's not like that. 
can I just um, think a little bit more about the and issues which have come out of the Ukraine conflict, which is, of course, huge um, migration, um, primarily to Poland, um, uh, to a lesser extent to the UK. After quite a lot of pressure, the UK did uh, welcome uh, Ukrainian refugees. Um, on the other hand, the UK hasn't been very welcoming to those crossing the channel in small boats in the same way that Poland has been hugely welcoming to Ukrainian refugees, but not to those who are camped out on the Belarusian-Poland uh, border. What's going on here? I, I, I mean, I, I think we know what's going on here, and we're just going to have to talk about it honestly. I mean, it's a bit like Chagos. Okay, what is the difference? And I'm really sorry to say this and put it in these terms, and I've said it elsewhere, but it is the reality. What's the difference between the 2,000 Chagossians and the 2,000 Falkland Islanders? At the end of the day, it is the colour of their skin. As Liz Bielise and other Chagossians have said to me, if we were white, none of this would have happened. Or if we'd been removed, we'd have been allowed back because there would have been such an uproar. And if we hadn't been allowed back then, after judgment, like that given by the Tribunal for the Law of the Sea and the decision of the International Court of Justice, we'd be allowed back now, but the British government isn't doing anything. And I think it's the same, you know, with basically lots of refugees in shocking conditions from Europe who look like us, blonde, blue-eyed, well, I'm not blonde and I'm not blue-eyed, but you know what I mean. And 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 it's it's problematic because... It's a very clear expression that has caused a great deal of hurt and upset um, for refugees from conflicts which are equally or even more terrible, who are not welcomed with open arms, who, when they try to get here now, may find themselves being deported to Rwanda. So I think, in answer to your question, these issues require us to look deep into our hearts and souls and ask our, ourselves really what is truly motivating um, our, our, our attitudes on these issues. And I think it's the same as the Chagos issue. I, I, I think also I just want to make the point that on, on, on Chagos and on Ukraine, there is another point of connection. I didn't mention it earlier, but I do want to mention it now. Following the decision of the International Court of Justice, the United Kingdom has been found to be in illegal occupation of a part of the territory of Africa. And yet it has engaged in an effort to dislodge Russia from its illegal occupation of a part of Ukraine. I, I actually support that effort. But what authority does it have to tell other countries um, that they should be joining in when African ambassadors tell me they receive um, you know, requests from the United Kingdom to help dislodge Russia from illegally occupied Ukraine, and the African ambassadors turn around and say, well, look, um, you are occupying part of Africa. What is the difference? And it's, it's this disconnect, I think, again, an inability to see ourselves as the world sees us. You're very experienced with that in the European context. I'm my experience is more of the global context, but I think it's aspects of the same thing. There's a deep affection for Britain. You know, it's you go around the world, and what you get is what on earth is happening to Britain. It's not. There's not. It's, there's anger from 
but disappointed anger, not, not, not malicious anger. There's a deep well of affection for the United Kingdom. There's deep respect for the United Kingdom's abilities, for its academics, for its lawyers, for its scientists, for its musicians, across the board. And yet there is puzzlement as to a country that appears to be literally imploding in on the world stage and on the European stage. If you were Home Secretary, what would you do about boats, small boats crossing the Channel? Well, happily, I, I will never be Home Secretary. <laughs> no, I um, think that's probably right. Chances of that happening. I mean, here is the difficulty. This is the issue of democracy at work. It's plain that many members, reasonable members of the British public, are deeply concerned about people coming from abroad and settling in their communities. And uh, one can't ignore that. Um, I still remember, as I'm sure you remember, and I, I think I date this back to the first time we really got a sense of this, that time when Gordon Brown got into the back of a car, left his microphone on and spoke, possibly as he may regret, about a lady he'd met who was complaining about you know, immigrants and refugees and foreigners coming in. So what do we do? I'm a privileged white male who lives in happy, lovely conditions. And from my perspective, I enjoy the multiculturalism of my community, of my country, but I have to respect that not everyone feels the same way about it. I do suspect that things are going to begin to change as we realise that many of the folk who provided invaluable services in our care homes, in our hospitals, in our universities and other places are no longer around and we're all suffering um, because of that. But in answer to your question, I'm afraid, rather as I answered it on the crime of aggression and Putin, I would have to stick to my principles and say that we need a proper system that determines that individuals who are truly refugees from oppressive regimes and at risk of torture, disappearance and other horrors should be able to come into our country and contribute to our country. I am myself the child, you know, of a, a mother who was taken in by French Catholic families in 1940 and whose life was saved by that instinct of generosity and, and openness. And so my tenure, I suspect, as Home Secretary would be extremely short because I would say... <laughs> Those who are genuinely entitled under the 1951 convention to be here, let us welcome them with open arms. Um, as for the others, no, we have to find ways to return them to the place from which they came. And I appreciate it's very, very difficult to sort out motive. Um, I don't, um, I don't understate those complexities, but um, I would have to stick to my principles or resign. <laughs> and what about the Rwanda scheme? Do you think that is a way of squaring the circle? I think it's just appalling. I'm just horrified and it really upsets me deeply. Um, I've been trying to work out in my mind how this relates to issues of race and identity. I mean, it's it's there. It's complex to work out. We have academic engagements and conferences about it. It seems to me to be so offensive, but personally it's offensive to me because many years ago I was involved as an expert uh, uh, 
witness type of thing in British proceedings where they had identified, it's a complex case, they'd identified three Rwandans who were living in the United Kingdom who were alleged to have uh, contributed to the terrible events of the 1990s, to the genocide that took place in Rwanda. And I was retained by counsel on their behalf to give expert evidence on the question of whether they would get a fair trial in Rwanda, whether Rwanda had independent courts, whether it had processes that would meet minimum standards of international justice. And I concluded that Rwanda did not offer those safeguards and those protections. That was a few years ago. I haven't looked at it more recently. I'm told things have improved, but I have a lot of questions and doubts as to whether they've improved that much. And when I hear, as some of the media reports have shown and articles by sensible people have shown, that the place where the British deportees are going to be housed are homes of victims of genocide that have been cleared out to accommodate British largesse and financial generosity, it's really troubling. So I think we will come to look on this episode as a really shameful one. In Australia, which is what it's modelled on, they've done the same thing with Nauru. And it's it's really nasty. Um, and, and I object to it with every sinew I have. Uh, whether it's illegal or not as a matter of English law, I don't know. That's not my expertise. But I welcomed the decision of the European Court of Human Rights to adopt provisional measures. Although, as we know, those will now be used to um, take forward the great plan of withdrawing from the European Convention on Human Rights, no doubt. So it's a bit of a poison chalice. It's, it's, but I think the court got it right. The court can't take account of those issues in, in Strasbourg, and it has to just do the right thing and take, it on, take the consequences on the chin. Philippe, thanks a million for your time. It's been an absolute delight talking to you, um, and good luck with the new book and with your next projects. Thank you so much. It's been really lovely to talk to you, Catherine.